Hello. Hello. Hey, Katie. Hey, Jason. Thank you for so much for agreeing to be interviewed tonight. Uh, of course. Thank you so much for having me. After 10 years battling obsessive skin picking, Jason read a Facebook post by someone who faced a similar struggle, and he learned what a body-focused repetitive behavior was. Now he runs a podcast entitled Fidget with the author of that Facebook post. They talk with other people dealing with BFRBs, and they hope their listeners find the courage to share their struggles with their family and friends. My name is Katie Houston Davies, and this is Mental Illness and Me. My name's Jason. I go by he, him pronouns. I am 28, and I live in Vancouver, Canada. Um, I'm a second-generation Chinese-Canadian, um, and I think historically that wasn't so much about my identity, but definitely within the last few years, I'm kind of, yeah, just exploring my cultural identity more. Um, yeah, in my spare time, I really love the outdoors. Uh, definitely being in Vancouver, just so blessed with the mountains. And um, <laughs> this past summer, I went on like a a five-day sea kayaking uh, camping trip, which was so fun. Um, yeah, I like uh, rock climbing. Um, yeah, so just uh, being out in the outdoors is really fun. And um, another thing I'd say I'm passionate about is music. Um, so yeah, that's like attending live concerts and my, my COVID project has been learning how to play the guitar and also, um, this, uh, this winter I'm learning how to sing a bit. So it's a bit cool. embarrassing, but yeah. <laughs> well, that's right up my alley. I don't know if you know much about me, but I'm a choir teacher. That's my profession. Oh. I'm not currently teaching cause I just had a baby and I also during the pandemic started teaching myself the guitar. I think a lot, we're going to have a lot of music come out of this pandemic. Yeah. So this kayaking trip sounds really exciting that, that you took. Where was that? Was that in Canada? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was on Vancouver Island. So I, I don't know, we had to take like a three, two, two hour ferry trip. And then we drove up Island. Um, it's kind of north of Tofino. I don't know if you've heard of Tofino, but like that's sort of like a, a place where a lot of people go surfing. And then, yeah, we um, to access like the drop off point. Um, there's like a little water taxi that like we load up all our gear and we had to bring like four days worth of water just like um, like in in like wow. totes. <laughs> and we just got dropped off on this island and um yeah it was like a little marine park we we saw like sea wolves like it was Whoa. really cool i had no idea that wolves lived by the ocean but apparently they yeah like wow. they live on these islands and they like swim and there was just like so many otters do you feel like you had to physically train like for the upper body work that it took to do it i personally did not which it wasn't too crazy or strenuous i mean i would say i'm like pretty fit in general like with rock climbing and um yeah i mean i'm often like right. just riding my bike through like i don't own a car so i just how i get around town is just by bike anyway so i think my baseline fitness was okay and i guess i held my own there was no like super strenuous kayaking so yeah. oh okay well that's good i was really interested when you said that you were exploring more of your cultural identity can you just tell mm. me a little bit more about that i'm just curious 
Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I grew up in a very predominantly like white um, suburb outside of Vancouver. I would say Vancouver is pretty multicultural, but definitely where I grew up. Um, yeah, <laughs> it wasn't so much. And I, I don't think, you know, I think some people ask if I like experienced racism growing up. And I, I don't think it was like so overt, but it was just like subtle where... Um, you know, I maybe I like felt like I didn't fit in or I think a lot of the racism, well, maybe not other people directed towards me. I think I directed it towards myself. So I was just embarrassed by being Chinese. I like pretended I didn't know how to speak the language. Um, like growing up, I didn't really like inviting other friends over to my house because I felt like my parents would play weird music and like, you know, I, I wouldn't be eating peanut butter sandwiches like all my friends. I just I wanted to fit in and I didn't like standing out. And unfortunately, what that meant was being Chinese. Um, I don't know. People just assumed that I was good at math, which like, I don't know. I was good at math, but I hated that they assumed that. Right. Um, and so I think I would like downplay that. And yeah, I don't know. It just kind of, I, I in, in different ways, I've sort of contorted my, like I was like preempting what I thought other people wanted me to be. And there was an element of either meeting those expectations or subverting them. And I, I'm recognizing, so it, it almost goes hand in hand with my mental health journey, but um in trying to like let go of those expectations and just try to be more true to who I am um, is, yeah, it, it, it's a journey I'm on. Um, another example I could give is even like being in the outdoors. So um, uh -huh. I, I, my friend, he volunteers for this organization called Color the Trails, which is all about bringing more people of color into the, the outdoors, which is kind of like a traditionally white space. Um, and really? I, yeah. I never, I never realized that. Yeah. You, you know, honestly, me, me neither. In certain ways, I felt like I prided myself for being able to fit into white spaces. And I, I think another element of my internalized racism was I looked down on like other Asian people who I guess were like less assimilated than me. And I was sort of like, come on guys get with the program um so what i associated with cool was yeah like fitting into whiteness being in the outdoors and um but yeah i i mean like really thinking about it uh accessing the outdoors can be quite expensive like a lot of the gear and also a lot of like the know-how so just if people didn't necessarily grow up camping um they're not like as comfortable you know how do you start a fire well my dad taught me well you know I never went camping with my dad so I think there's sort of this generational element of yeah who are the people who access the outdoors I want to shift a little bit shift gears a little bit to talk about your mental illness story mm. and you're here to talk about uh, body-focused repetitive behavior. Mm -hmm. When did you first learn that term and understand what that was? Uh, yeah, good, good question. And if anything, I, I, I definitely need to separate them. Uh, I learned the term maybe two years ago um, and very much by accident. 
the symptoms first started appearing. Um, so for me, I uh, compulsively scratch at my hands or I pick at my skin. Um, and I would do this for like hours. And it, I just like, I feel like I wouldn't be able to control myself. And I, I first started doing this maybe 10 years ago when I was about 18, 19. Um, and I would get these cuts on my hand and they would just like, like bleed, you know, when I, when I tried to use them. And I, I just had so much shame associated with it. Um, and I didn't tell anyone about it. Um, yeah, I, I would just lie to all the people close to me about why this happens. Um, but how I learned this BFRB term was I was uh, dating a girl and she one of her friends um, on Facebook posted that she had trichotillomania, which is uh, compulsive hair pulling. Um, so that's another uh, condition under the BFRB umbrella. And so uh, this, this person, Adele, made a Facebook post. And the girl I was dating, she's like, Jason, I, I think this is what you have. <laughs> and I felt like, like Katie, like the, the wind just like escaped out of my lungs. Like I'm like, holy crap, this explains so much of the last like 10 years of my life. But yeah. I just never knew the term. So yeah, um, I remember having a similar moment reading a book that talked about some symptoms of OCD and just being like, oh my gosh, I'm not a freak. Yeah, totally. So um, I, I when you talked about the cuts on your hands and kind of hiding it from people, it made me realize that there's got to be, I'm sure there's kind of a fine line in the BFRB world between what's considered self-harm, like things like mm. cutting, and mm. then what's a BFRB. Like, how do you distinguish between those two? Because it is a self-harm, mm -hmm. but, but is it the same thing? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting question. Um, I would say not, not that I've looked up necessarily the definition so please um, by no means take this um, but I would say the intention is different I think uh, my understanding of self-harm is people who engage in self-harm there's an element of uh, like consciousness of like oh I, I, I want to hurt myself in order to I think feel in that way whereas for me my BFRB it's it's like an it's a reaction and if anything um when it first started appearing and honestly still what i struggle with is my bfrb comes at night um when i'm kind of semi-conscious or even unconscious um, so maybe you can think of it like people who grind their teeth at night um to the point where they like you know crack their teeth uh i wouldn't necessarily call grinding your teeth a self-harm activity it's a it's like a nervous clenching right right um so it's oftentimes instigated by stress and anxiety right totally yeah, yeah exactly i i see it as a coping mechanism for unprocessed emotions my mind sometimes jumps to other um kind of mental health conditions like people who maybe overeat or like they turn to drugs or alcohol even people who like have like gambling addictions or shopping addictions it is this this urge right this, this energy that's stored within their body that they can't quite process um or 
it's not that they can't process. They are processing it through their compulsions, which mine right. happens to be uh, scratching my skin. Are there any other symptoms you exhibited that sort of led you to believe that you might have this disorder or any other disorders? Well, again, like I said, when I first when I first started exhibiting the symptoms, I didn't quite know. I, I don't know. I think there was a certain element of like denial about my mental health. Like I didn't think I had a condition. I just um, a lot of people would look at my hands and they assumed I had eczema. Oh, They're just like, oh, like you have really dry skin. Like, Jason, you should try this lotion or like, oh, um, you know, in the wintertime, my hands also crack. So, uh, you know, they were trying to like, I guess, like placate my feelings. But um, I guess I knew that I was doing it to myself um, because the, the cuts would appear in oddly specific places. Um, it, I, I knew I was doing it to myself, but I didn't, you know, I didn't quite put the pieces together that hey this was a mental health like yeah like it's in the dsm-5 like um you know you could get diagnosed with this and like funnily enough uh to this day i have tried to approach um like um going to my doctor and saying hey i would like a an official diagnosis like i'm 99 percent sure this is what i have but no medical professional has like I guess, signed off on it. So really, my diagnosis is still kind of from Facebook, which, um, I mean, I, I have issues with, but that's that's kind of how it is. What but, does DSM-5 stand for? What does that mean? Uh, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, I believe. Um, it's like the big book of, it's what, um, uh, let's say, psychologists use to sort of reference um, oh, does this person have schizophrenia or gotcha. autism? And uh, it kind of it it gives a um, like a severity scale. It helps the psychologist diagnose um, right. patients. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, I when I've talked to other people in the past that have BFRBs, it seems like it's almost always partnered with other types of mental illnesses like OCD mm -hmm. or anxiety, depression. What has been your experience with that or from people that you've met in your support groups or in your own experience? Yeah, definitely. I, um, I absolutely think it's a manifestation of my anxiety. I have anxious, intrusive thoughts. I, I guess I could argue they're obsessive sometimes. I have trouble sleeping, so maybe there's a component of insomnia in there, and uh, yeah, the that's how the BFRB comes out. Um, but I also link it to, like the things that make me anxious is some like perfectionism or um, yeah, something didn't quite go how I was expecting it, so that that makes me anxious. I feel like you know there's some performance anxiety, there's some people pleasing. Um, I also believe there's some like body dysmorphia. Um, I could link that back into uh, kind of my uh, Chinese uh, cultural identity piece as well. It, you know, it's a big soup <laughs> in, in my brain. And uh, my BFRB is just sort of how my body has kind of is, is trying to process a lot of those anxieties. I feel like something upsetting about a BFRB is that there's kind of like the root anxiety 
So like, say I can't fall asleep. So now I'm angry at myself. Jason, why can't you fall asleep? You have a big day tomorrow. You need to be well rested. Okay, well, now I'm anxious that I'm not going to be well rested for tomorrow. So let me pick up my skin. Ah, now my hand's bleeding. Ah, why can't you stop picking your hand? So it like, it in it of itself re-triggers me oh. <laughs> over and over again. So it's it's a cycle. It really yeah. is. A never-ending cycle. That's that's <laughs> tricky. Um, I'm reading a book right now called OC Daniel, and it's about an eighth grade boy who has OCD. You can just tell uh, in this little teenager's brain how angry he is at himself for his mm. obsessions and his compulsions. Um, but he feels very powerless to to change. But he's but he's can't sleep because of them and cries at night. And it's a fiction book, but it's based on true. Uh, principles in the OCD world. And um, yeah, it's, it's so sad to see how these disorders lead to such a blow to the self-esteem. I know that I experienced that a lot. Somebody once taught me this formula that suffering is equal to pain times resistance. Um, so pain, like life, life stress is going to happen no matter what. But the more that we resist that pain, the more that it like it well, it literally transforms into suffering because we're like we're revisiting that pain over and over and over again. Wow. And um, that's I, I think how I felt with my BFRB because I I spent just so much of my life like denying it, not accepting it, trying to pretend it wasn't there. And it again, it 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 transformed into suffering. So yeah. that is a really interesting idea. I really I really <laughs> like that. So how has um, the BFRB or any of the surrounding anxieties and that kind of thing, how have those things impacted your daily life mm. when work, school, relationships, and that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, at kind of the, uh, I don't know, the, the surface level, like I mentioned with, with the cuts on my hand, um, honestly, it's just like <laughs> painful to use sometimes. Um, like even like opening doors, um, like buttoning my my shirt. Um, I I have to hold it when my cuts are like quite bad. I have to hold my pencil. I have to modify how I hold pencils because I can't bend my my fingers, um, or they just start like bleeding. Um, and I think a lot of that transforms into shame. So. Uh, yeah, when I, I remember like writing a test while I when I was at school and just blood would s start like appearing on the page. But like, that was my test. So I'm like, Oh, well, there's nothing I can do about this hand in the test. Like, sorry, teacher. Um, I sometimes get this little stab of, of shame when the like I start bleeding unexpectedly and then I, you know, the mind, the, my mind starts racing. Oh, who's going to notice? Everyone's going to think this is gross. Like, how am I going to explain this? Um, and that really ate away at my self-confidence. I, I, I felt like I always had this wall, like this, this, this barrier between myself and who I really was and how other people saw me. Um, and I think that, I don't know, it prevented me from taking risks because maybe I didn't believe I could, I could do it. And I was sort of afraid that, I don't know, my body would just break down or couldn't handle the stress. Um, and I think I like, in retrospect, sometimes I feel like I played it pretty safe. Um, like after graduating, I 
took the first job that I had available. I like continued to live relatively close to my parents. And sometimes I'm like, oh, what if I move to Toronto or Montreal? But um, yeah, I'm like, nah, that's going to be too stressful. You shouldn't do that. So um, that's kind of how I feel like it, it, um, it plays out on, yeah, on the, on the different levels. And you're, you're still fairly young. You said you're 28, right? Yes. And you're still, and it's only been in the past few years that you've really started to uh, explore this, this mm-hmm. part of you. Right. And so mm-hmm. I think that there's definitely lots of room for growth and for change <laughs> in, in your future, which is really exciting. Yeah, totally. Thank you. Yes. Um, definitely within the last two years, it just felt like, like a damn burst. And I'm like, oh my goodness. Like I just, um, yeah, I, I, I guess I, I could say I feel hopeful of just like how much growth is possible. Yeah. And really for the first time I can see that. Um, whereas before I think it was just like, I was like clouded in darkness. So. Right. And, and hopelessness just, the, the never ending cycle and, and, and the sort of the isolation of not really knowing what was going on, but then finding people that are like you, it is such a liberating thing. Absolutely. Yes. Which kind of leads me to the next thing you have done your own advocacy in this area. You have a podcast, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, it's called fidget <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's, it's about, uh, BFRBs, um, I do it with my friend Adele, who I mentioned earlier, who she was the one who originally made that Facebook post. She has um, trichotillomania or compulsive hair pulling. Just the the nature of the conversations that I was having with Adele, um, like I said, it, it's just sort of, it was so, like, I felt like I could just be myself. And for the first time, I could just explore these these ideas that I had that I was like suppressing for so long inside of me. And once I had those conversations with Adele, I realized I wanted my, the other people in my life to also be able to hear these conversations or really see the side of me. Um, Again, because I've just like in the past, I would lie so much and make so many excuses. So uh, (laughs) how the podcast started was um, I just, well, because I still had so much shame of it, like there was like 10 years of not being able to tell the truth that in person, it was still really hard for me. So what I actually did was, well, me and Adele, we recorded a conversation and then I would show it to my friend to be like, hey, here's this thing. I've never been able to talk to you about it, but I want to, I don't have the words, but listen to this recording and like, uh, like after you listen to it, like, let me know if you have any questions. Um, And that was just so important for me. That's actually like how I first had the conversation with my mom. Another part of the story that I kind of didn't mention earlier, but when I first had my BFRB, I was so afraid and I didn't know what was happening to the point where I, I would get panic attacks. And um, this one panic attack, I was actually hospitalized. And so how my the first time my mom found out about my BFRB was I was like handcuffed to a hospital bed at like two in the morning. And that was 2012, I think. And yeah, I did not talk to my mom about it until 2019 when or 2020, sorry. 
when I had this podcast recording and I'm like, mom, this is something I want you to hear. Um, so anyways, that's kind of um, the importance that podcasting has had on my journey. You know, this it's, it's so ironic, really. Um, this thing that I had so much shame about was so isolating is now like exactly the thing that well, it connected me to Adele. It's connected me with people in like Chicago, New York, London. It's it's the reason why I'm talking to you right now, Katie. Like, right? It's, it's kind of crazy. And I again, I've been I've been reflecting a lot on like why was I so silent for for so long? And I think it's I've always wanted to explain it to people, but I just I felt like I didn't know where to start. Where do I begin? Um, I don't want to mess it up. I, I felt like I only had this one like opportunity to explain myself. And if I did it incorrectly, people would think I'd be weird or like people would hate me or they wouldn't want to be my friends anymore. So I'm like, ah, I was like putting all this extra pressure on the first time I tell someone it's got to be perfect. And um, again, like I said, I, I have this performance anxiety, I have this perfectionism. So that just it it shied me away from being right about it. Yeah. yeah you wanted to do it perfectly or explain it start in the right place and yeah I I totally understand it can be really overwhelming and paralyzing yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah well after through your experiences that you've had what would be the best advice that you would have for somebody who's suffering with a similar disorder to your own because I imagine there are pe oh, many people out there that that are experiencing some of the same kinds of symptoms but have no idea that there is a name for it well i think that what what we just talked about it, uh, applies don't try to make the first person you tell like it doesn't have to be perfect it it doesn't need to be all inclusive and by the end of that one conversation the other person perfectly understands your experience because I'm going to be honest, that's not going to happen. It is just the beginning of the conversation. So um, allow yourself that first time to, to be imperfect, to say, like, this is what I do. I don't know how to talk about it, but I just want you to know. And like, honestly, right. that's enough. Like, you don't need yeah. to go on beyond that. And it's like, hey, I'd love to continue talking about this over the next few months. But this is all I can manage right now. Right. Um, and I think related to that, uh, something that I, I believe is um, to try not to change yourself too much. Um, try just to understand what is going on. So I think for so long with my BFRB, I was judging myself. I'm like, why can't you stop? Why can't you stop? Why can't you stop scratching? And I was just trying to change like how I was acting in the world but really again the more I've learned about my BFRB it's it it exists for a reason my BFRB exists to again cope with these unprocessed emotions and so the more I'm trying to get to the bottom of that and understand what are those emotions that um yeah you haven't been processing um I, that's how that real, you know, that's how you're going to redefine that relationship with, with yourself and your BFRB.
don't try to change it. Just try to understand it. Yeah. And I know that with BFRBs, just from other people I've spoken to, I know treatment is tricky and it's complex and it's still um, being researched and understood. Have you sought any type of treatment or counseling for any of the anxiety and that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. I have. Um, well, when I first had my panic attacks um, at the hospital, the psychologist was like, you know, oh, you know, uh, you're in a very high, like I was um, first in university. Um, I was like living away from my parents for the first time. So the the hospital was like, you know, it's it's pretty normal that you're going through a lot of stress. Like we recommend you go see a, a psychologist. And I don't think I was ready for therapy yet. Um, I was still in denial. I was still like angry at myself for like having this, but not believing I maybe deserved, or I think I just felt so lucky. Like my parents had given me so much opportunity and it was like weirdly like disrespectful to have a a mental health uh, disorder. So I don't think I was ready to open up. And, um, oh yeah, I I can totally relate to those feelings. You're like, (laughs) especially it's like, well, I had a good childhood. My parents loved me. Like, why do I hate myself? You know, it's going to, I'd be afraid that it would reflect badly on them and make people think that I didn't have a good upbringing, which I did. I had the best, the the best upbringing, you know? Totally. You know, if anything, I hated myself more because of that, right? Like, it was like, oh, you know, my parents gave me everything and yet you still have this then that's reason for you to suffer Um, and like I don't deserve happiness or I don't deserve to receive help like when the psychologists were meeting with me I'm like like don't waste your time like you should be helping other people with like quote-unquote real problems like my problem is fake and I should be able to manage this myself or something Yeah. Um, yeah I actually so I've I've seen I saw maybe five or six like different mental health professionals I was on um, SSRI medication um, for two or three years, but honestly, none of that, none of it really clicked until I met Adele and she shared her experience. And I'm like, oh my goodness, (laughs) like, holy cow. So uh, yeah, it's, it's been a journey. (laughs) You know, earlier we were talking about like, the importance of podcasts and like hearing other people explain their experience. I find like in the traditional therapy model, it's like the psychologist or the counselor therapist and they're, they were asking me questions like, how do you feel about this? How do you feel about this? How do you feel about this? And I don't think I was like, um, I hadn't reflected enough. You know, I, I didn't know I needed to hear other people share their experiences. And for me to map my feelings onto what, on their words and I'm like oh that's what I was feeling I didn't know that because I was so disconnected from right like myself right Um, yeah Uh, yeah I really I like that you say that I think that that's one fear that I have as a fellow podcaster um, (laughs) is is the fear of trying to overstep bounds when it comes to mental health professionals like I absolutely I'm not a mental health professional so I I try to to really keep it separate to understand that this is just about people telling their stories so that Mm. other people 
can connect and recognize themselves in somebody else and then hopefully uh, gain courage from that to go and get some professional treatment and help. But I never want it to seem like I'm trying to dole out any type of professional advice, except for when we do have professionals on the, on the podcast, but it's, yeah, it's, there's a balance there, but I think it's important, like you said, to share Mm -hmm. stories because people can see themselves in those stories. Absolutely. So this is something that I'm kind of learning in the like, um, Asian cultural space, but like, you know, representation matters. And that's absolutely the same. I could say the same for the mental health space is representation matters when we're talking about uh, these different things that we're struggling with, because it allows people to see themselves in other people's stories, right? Right. Um, And so many of these feelings that we all experience, but we've just we don't spend the time to like put our finger on that that feeling and it just kind of blows by. The goal of Mental Illness in Me is to normalize the mental health conversation and help those who suffer feel less alone. Your support is critical to raise awareness and help as many people as possible. If this podcast resonates with you, please follow our Instagram account, Mental Illness in Me KT, our Facebook page, Mental Illness in Me, or leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. If you are interested in sharing your story, please email mentalillnessandmekt at gmail.com.